Welcome to Church on the Edge, a podcast designed to challenge you and help you rethink what church is and what church should be. This is your host, Dan Armistead. You can learn more about me at my website, danarmistead.com, so please check it out. As we begin this season, I'm going to be sharing with you a series of messages entitled, The Scandalous Life of Jesus Christ. It's a series from my time as pastor at Seoul International Baptist Church in South Korea. But before I share this first message today, I just simply want to take some time to tell you about our church, SIBC, where I have just stepped down as pastor after 12 incredible years. My wife, Sherry, and I moved to Seoul in May of 2008. At the time, I was hurting and burned out after 25 years as a pastor in very traditional and very institutional churches. I share parts of that story in several articles that you can find on my website. But the bottom line for me is this. God used this incredible international church to heal me and breathe new life into me and Sherry and our ministry. SIBC is officially a Baptist church, but we have people from many different Christian traditions and denominations. In fact, over the years, I would often joke with our congregation that Baptists may be the minority in our Baptist church. Lutherans, Presbyterians, Foursquare Pentecostals, Methodists, Anglicans, and even a few Roman Catholics have been a part of our fellowship over these many years. We generally have about 20 to 25 nationalities representing countries from all over the world in our services. Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation, our church was and is a little taste of heaven. Pastor James Lynch follows me in this church, and even now they are looking at a new name that demonstrates the wonderful diversity in SIBC. And that's been the best thing about SIBC for me, coming together around the person and message of Jesus Christ with so many wonderful followers of Jesus and seeing the prayer of Jesus in John 17, where he asked the Father that his church would be one and united together so that the world may believe. We've experienced that. And that's my heart, the unity of the church. And yet, Before that unity can really take place in the church, we have to learn and accept the fact that the life and message of Jesus will always upset the self-righteous. Those who place their theological camp above the call to follow Jesus. We should never forget that it was the religious leaders in his day who engineered the death of Jesus. And why? because they said he was a heretic, a false teacher. Jesus scandalized these defenders of the faith, these guardians of orthodoxy. And the truth is, the message and life of Jesus still does that today. And that's a lot of what you're going to hear in this series on the scandalous life of Jesus Christ. I want to challenge you to listen to these messages and ask God to give you ears to hear and eyes to see the sinless scandal that was and is the life of Jesus Christ. And more than that, I want to challenge you to follow that Jesus. I promise you it's worth it. 
And so with no further ado, let's begin our introductory message to the scandalous life of Jesus Christ. So uh, I want to take the next three weeks that I'm here to, um, during this Christmas season, as we celebrate Advent, the first coming of our Lord, uh, to share something with you that's been on my heart for a long time, well over a a decade. In fact, one of the things I'm going to be doing in January uh, as I take a a month sabbatical back in the United States is I'm going to be working on a book about these thoughts and reflections that, uh, that I've had, like I say, for over a decade. And the title of the book is the same as the title here of uh, this little series that we're going to do for the next few weeks. It's The Scandalous Life of Jesus Christ, and the subtitle is The Sinless Scandal of the Savior. And I guess the best way to begin is to kind of share with you how I came up with a a title like this, The Scandalous Life of Jesus Christ. You know, when most of us think about Jesus Christ and about his life, the last thing we associate it with is is the word scandal. In fact, when most of us think of scandals, the last thing we think of is a sinless scandal. I mean, has anybody heard any such thing as a sinless scandal? You know, when we think of scandals, uh, just to put a few up here that were on my heart this week, when we think of scandals, we think of things like here in Korea, the Seawall Ferry incident. You know, Koreans are still upset and hurt and angry over that incident that happened uh, two years ago in April. 304 passengers and crew died on April the 15th, 2014, and most of those that died were high school students. And if you're around and if you're aware with what happened, you know that as uh, they began to investigate the sinking of that ship, they found all sorts of violations and mismanagement from the owners to the crew and the captain. Uh, There were arrests made. One man was found that appeared to be committed suicide. But it was a very, very um, uh, scandalous event here in South Korea. Interestingly enough, the same time that this event was taking place in the United States, there was another scandal, or in Korea, there was another scandal going on in the United States. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with this one, but this is a picture of Donald Sterling. Donald Sterling was the owner of a National Basketball Association team, uh, the Los Angeles Clippers. And uh, the pretty lady next to him there is basically his mistress, V. Steviano. He was married. But uh, she recorded him, and the news kind of got out that, uh, uh, St- that uh, Sterling's wife was after his mistress. She had over a couple million dollars of gifts, and, and Sterling, met, some were saying, was kind of losing his mind. So um, she recorded him making some racist comments and slurs, very, very racist slurs. And the result of that uh, was that the National Basketball Association banned Donald Sterling from life from the NBA, and he ended up losing his ownership in that basketball team, well over $2 billion. Now, I think those are the kind of things that most of us think about when we think of scandals. Sadly, when we think of scandals, many of us also think about scandals in the church, We think about 
priest molesting young boys. Or we think of one of the biggest scandals among evangelicals in recent years, also happened in the United States. Uh, the head of the National Evangelistic Association, a man by the name of Ted Haggard, admitted to using methamphetamine, very powerful narcotic, and to engaging in sexual relationship with another man, a gay man, from Denver for three years. In fact, just to give you a little background on that scandal, of course, Ted Haggard lost his church, lost his place as the head of the Evangelical Association in America, But the man that he was involved in that sexual relationship with did not know who he was. Ted Haggard was pretty prominent. He was in Colorado Springs, had a huge megachurch. And this man one day, this gay man, discovered, probably on the internet or somehow looking in the paper, who it was he'd been having this relationship with. And he was so upset as he began to listen to Ted Haggard's sermons and read what he wrote... Uh, so critical and harsh toward homosexuals, he said, I felt in my heart I just had to expose him. And he did. And there's the guy he had the uh, relationship with. And you see the Denver Post, uh, Ted Haggard, left amid this uh, terrible, terrible scandal. But scandals are just a part of our world, and they've certainly been a part of the church and have heard our witness at times. But the scandal that I want to write about, and the scandal that I want to teach about, and especially for these next few weeks, is a sinless scandal. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? A sinless scandal. But it is. Because that's exactly what the life and the teachings of Jesus Christ caused in first century Palestine. They caused a scandal that led to his death. Virgin born, lived a sinless life, healed the sick, the lame, the blind, the demon possessed. And of all the peoples of the earth, all of us someday will stand before Jesus Christ and he will judge the great and the small, the rich and the poor. Today he is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And for all of us who have committed our lives to him and followed him, someday the Bible says we will reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth. But you may say, well, Dan, why would you refer to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as scandalous? Well, I want you to notice up on the screen a very important word that appears several times in the New Testament. It's the Greek word skandalion. And that particular word is translated in the New Testament as offense. We find the word often associated with Jesus. Paul mentions about the offense that he caused. But that word translated offense, that Greek word skandalion, gives us our English word scandal. Now, again, as I said, it's a word that appears many, many times in the New Testament, but I want us to look at two examples of it in the Gospels today as we kind of get started and as I introduce this to you. We'll be moving to some more deliberate, specific Christmas messages surrounding that scandal in the next few weeks because it begins with the birth of Jesus, all the scandal. 
But let's look at a couple of passages in Matthew today. And the first one's in Matthew chapter 15. So just turn over there to Matthew 15. And uh, you've got your pew Bible if you didn't bring one, or maybe your Bible app if you have one on your phone. Matthew chapter 15. And uh, Jesus has just rebuked one of the major sects or denominations, if you will, of the Jews. It was a sect or denomination known as the Pharisees, and he has accused them of teaching as doctrines the commandments of men or the teachings of men. And that's found, if you will, look with me in verses 8 and 9, a couple of comments of Jesus. Jesus says in verse 7, Well did Isaiah the prophet say of you, you Pharisees, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And it all started, this particular incident, when the Pharisees accused Jesus and his disciples of of not honoring the tradition of the elders because they didn't wash their hands ritual washing of the hands before they're eight. Now, I could say a lot about the ritual washing of the hands, but that just kind of distracts us from the main point today. I will have you note something very important, though, and that is in verse 3 of Matthew 15, that Jesus, immediately after they accuse him, why aren't you and your disciples washing your hands as the traditions of the elders require? It says, he answered them and said, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition. Now, the important thing to note here, don't miss this, is that Jesus was accusing the leaders of a major denomination in Judaism of not living their lives according to the teachings of Scripture. It would be like Jesus saying, why do you Baptist not do so and so? And saying it to a bunch of Baptist pastors and leaders. But again, I want you to notice something else that happens. Drop down to verse 12. This, this is almost humorous to me if it weren't so sad. Because the disciples of Jesus are shocked that he just did this. You know, you just called out a bunch of guys. You just called out a bunch of Baptists, Jesus, for crying out loud. What are you doing? And they said in verse 12, Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you not know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying, when you said this? Now, that's our word, scandalion, offended. Now, the truth is that Jesus offended, Jesus scandalized pretty much all of the religious groups and denominations and camps of his day. In fact, that's one of the major themes of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Over and over, we find the religious leaders accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath. They accused him of being a friend of sinners, that is, hanging out with them, eating with them, tax collectors and prostitutes. They looked at disdain at him over his treatment of women and tax collectors. And the list just goes on and on and on. All of the things that Jesus said and that Jesus did that were so offensive 
especially offensive to the religious community of his day and especially offensive to the shepherds, the leaders, the pastors, if you will, of that day. But the question that I want us to think about together this afternoon as we get started thinking about that scandalous or offensive life that Jesus led is why? Why was he so offensive? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question that we could give. But I want us to focus on one thing today. And again, in Matthew's gospel, if you turn to chapter 11, Matthew chapter 11, beginning in verse 2, John the Baptist is in prison. John, of course, is the forerunner of Messiah. He's the one who Messiah, who Isaiah said would be the voice crying in the wilderness, the one who would make stra- straight the ways of the Lord. John is the one who had pointed his finger at Jesus and said to all the people in the crowd that day, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's the one who said to Jesus, when Jesus came to be baptized, he said, I don't need to be baptizing you. You need to be baptizing me. But now John's in prison. And John's beginning to have doubts. And so John sends some of his disciples to Jesus. And notice what happens. Chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And then verse 6, here's our word again. And blessed is the one who is not offended, scandalized, scandalion, by me. Now let me ask you a question. What would cause John the Baptist, first cousin, by the way, of Jesus, what would cause John the Baptist to doubt that Jesus was Messiah? Here's a major part of the answer. Jesus was not the Messiah that John expected to see. John, as well as the religious leaders and the people of that day, were looking for a Messiah who would be a nationalistic Messiah for Israel. He would come and take the reins of power. He would set up an earthly kingdom and he would rule from Jerusalem. But instead, here comes this uneducated carpenter who worked as a carpenter, laying stone, cutting wood, working in homes, For 30 years, and then he comes from the country, he's rural, he's not sophisticated, he's not Seoul or Manhattan, he's out in the sticks, and he's teaching, not in Jerusalem. He made very few trips to Jerusalem, Jesus did. Did you know that? He's teaching in rural communities. He's spending time with the marginalized, the poor, the downcast. And as we said, he's spending time with tax collectors who were not even allowed in the synagogue, in the churches. They were expelled, excommunicated, and he's spending time with 
prostitutes. Now this is not what John, and this is not what the religious community in that day expected from their Messiah. And Jesus says something very important for that generation and for our generation and for generations of followers of our Lord until he returns. He says to all of us, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Let me tell you what God did, the Father, when he sent his son Jesus into our world. He broke all of the expectations that we have in our world of a hero, of a savior. He did. In fact, I want to show you something on the screen here. Isaiah prophesied this, and uh, going back to Isaiah 53, verse 3, Isaiah tells us as he looks forward to the coming of Messiah, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't hold him up at all. We esteemed him not. Very interesting. Um, Eugene Peterson, uh, is, he's an old man now. I love the guy, though. He's, he's written the message, which is a, more of a paraphrase than a translation. But Eugene Peterson uh, was not only uh, um, a scholar of ancient languages like Hebrew, but other dead languages. And he, he has some great stuff translated in both the Old and the New Testament. But I love his translation of this particular verse. So let me look, look at that with you. He says there was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over. A man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him, thought he was scum. So here's what I want you to see. The life and the ministry of Jesus Christ was not what people, especially what religious people, expected to see. Worst of all, the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ was offensive to many religious people. It was scandalous, the things he did and said. And when we come to grips with that reality, when we really read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and we see that, we understand that, that even the brightest and the best and godly man like John the Baptist, along with the shepherds of Israel, their leaders, when we see how shocked they were and baffled they were, and many times outraged they were at Jesus and threatened as they were by Jesus, then we begin to understand why we can say that the life of Jesus Christ was a scandalous life. It certainly produced great scandal. And then we begin to understand some of the most important teachings of Jesus. In fact, most important teachings in the Bible. So I want to take a few minutes now. If you've got your Bibles, these won't be on the screen. And look at some Bible verses because what we want to do is we want to let the Scripture speak to us. And let's look at a few Scriptures together. Some of these I'll call out because I know them. Uh, You can turn there. Uh, I'll tell you why I'm giving you the Scripture. The first one is Isaiah 55 verse 9. This is one I quote often up here from the pulpit. 
Uh, it's a great verse. God is speaking, and God says through the prophet Isaiah, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts, and so are my ways above your ways. Now, just let that sink in for a minute, okay? God doesn't think like we think. God is calling us to think like he thinks. That's part of the challenge of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to show you that in a minute in the scripture. That was the call of Jesus Christ. Start thinking like God. Mark chapter 8 verse 18 is an example of something Jesus said often. He said, let the person who have eyes to see, see, and ears to hear, hear. Very important in the life of Jesus Christ. Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? There's no way without eyes to see and ears to hear that you can see Jesus for who he really is. Now, look at another scripture, John chapter 1, verse 9. John chapter 1, verse 9. And I'm going to read this one and kind of comment on it as we make our way forward. John says this, The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Sometimes we read scriptures like that, and we just read and write right over it. John is making an amazing statement. He made the world, and he came into the world that he made, and the world did not know him. But it gets even worse. Verse 11, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He came to Jews. He came to the religion and the culture, and he was a part of it. Those who had the scriptures, those who knew the only God, and they rejected him. Of course, the best part of that is the next verse. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. Okay, a couple of the scriptures. This is important, so stick with me. John chapter 6. We'll stay in John here. Um, and, and then we'll go to Revelation. But John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus is speaking here. He's just said, In verse 63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, now get this, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now just hold on to that, okay? Look, if you would, down in verse 60. Or go back, if you would, to verse 60. I'm sorry. When many of his disciples heard what he was saying, this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? There's that word, scandal again. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh 
is no help at all. Now, let's just stop right there. The flesh is no help at all. What does that mean? Human thinking, human ways, human logic, human reasoning, human ways of seeing and hearing. When you look at Jesus Christ, he says, look, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you then are spirit and Life, And then he goes on to make that statement. That's why I said that no one can come to me than come unless the Father draws him. Now, turn over to chapter 7, still in John, verse 24. I know these are a lot of scriptures, but that's what we base our teaching on here. Verse 24, crucial verse for us to hear as disciples of Jesus and those who want to see him for who he truly is. Jesus says, do not judge by appearances. But judge with right or righteous judgment. That kind of reminds me of what God said to the prophet Samuel when he sent him to anoint David as the king. And of course, Jesus is the son of David, right? Notice the connection. And all of Jesse's sons come and stand before the prophet Samuel, and God says, no, this isn't the one I'm going to anoint as king. And finally, they find out, well, there's one son left. He's the youngest. He's out in the field taking care of the sheep. He's got the dirty job. And Samuel says, no, 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 go get him. Wait before we have any feast or do anything else. And they bring David, and he stands before him, all dirty, smelling like sheep, And God speaks to Samuel and he says, I don't judge like men. Men look at the outer appearance. I look at something deeper, the heart. When Jesus says this here, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now this is when, look, this chapter is when thousands rejected and walked away from him. Why? Because you cannot see Jesus Christ judging by appearances, judging by the flesh. Let me tell you a prayer that every one of us as disciples of Jesus needs to pray and those who are seeking to become disciples if his claims are true. But this is something every disciple of Jesus needs to pray every day of our lives. God, open my eyes to see you for who you truly are. I can't come to you. I can't see you without your help because as high as the heavens are above the earth, your ways are above my ways. Your thoughts are above your thoughts. God, I need you to draw me and open my eyes to see. Do you understand that? And by the way, do you hear in those words the interaction, the divine human equation both God's sovereignty, he's the one that opened our eyes, but us, responsible, crying out to him. He says, when you seek me with all your heart, then you will find me. Now, chapter 7, verses 23 through 31. I know there's a lot of scripture, but hang in there with me, okay? Or excuse me, this is uh, 25 through 31. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? That's the religious leaders they're talking about. And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now look at this next verse. But we know where this man comes from. 
And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now one more verse in chapter 7, verse 52. This is what the religious leaders said to one of their own. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night? And Jesus gave him that uh, great lecture on you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus became a secret redeemer, a secret believer, follower. He was part of the 70-member Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin that ruled the Jews. They were like, well, they were politicians, really religious politicians. And they're conspiring against Jesus. And uh, really, if you back up to verse 51, Nicodemus says this to them all. As they're gathering together saying, how can we get rid of this guy? He says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now listen to what they say. They replied, are you from Galilee too? You hear the scorn in that, the reproach in that. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Now, one more verse and we'll be done. Revelation chapter 5. And look with me at verse 5. Revelation chapter 5 is about a search to find the one who can redeem the lost world, me and you. And uh, they have looking for that one. They've looked on heaven and on earth and underneath the earth. But nobody can be found, he says. And in verse 4, John begins to weep because nobody was found. But in verse 5, it says, one of the elders said to me, to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all of the earth. Here's what I want you to see. The lion's been found. But when John gazes at the lion, what does he see? A lamb. Not just a lamb. In fact, the word he uses here is the Greek word arneon. The word lamb is used several times in the New Testament. The word arneon is only used two times, one in John's gospel and one here. It means the, a little lamb, a, the meekest of all. And to make it even worse, the one who's going to redeem and save us from our plight is as it had been slain. There's nothing weaker looking, nothing that would pe- appear to be more impossible to save us from the plight of sin and to redeem us, described as a lion. Oh, and believe me, he was and he is, but he appears as a lamb. Now let's go back to the uh, video. Go back and remember, don't show it again, but go back to the video. This uh, was a scene put together with some 
some scriptures, some scriptures from the Chronicles of Narnia written by C.S. Lewis. I want to have, have any of you ever read those Chronicles of books or seen the movie? No, C.S. Lewis, great stuff. And, uh, of course, if you know anything about it, you know that the lion, Aslan there, is a symbol, as Lewis writes, of the Christ, of the Lord, the lion of the tribe of Judah. There's a really interesting conversation in that book that all of us should be aware of, and I want to share it with you now. It's, uh, it's Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver is talking with this human girl, Susan. And uh, he says this to her. He says, well, let me tell you about Aslan. She wants to know who he is. She says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. And Susan says, ooh, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that quote. This is the Jesus we follow. This is the Jesus we are called to follow and worship. This is the Jesus who was in the beginning with God and was God. This is the Jesus who is the creator of heaven and earth. And in order to see him, in order to truly know him, we must be able to see him as both the lion and the lamb. Both are essential. And Jesus plainly tells us that the only way we can see him for true as he truly is is for God to open our eyes to recognize him. And I want to tell you this afternoon that this same Jesus who caused such scandal and offense in the first century among his own people in Palestine still possesses that same power to offend and scandalize even the most religious, sincere, devout, church-going people today. Can I say that another way? To scandalize you and me. To offend us. You see, Jesus cannot be tamed. He is independent of us. He is above us. And yet he came to live among us. And as we read his story told by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as the Spirit of Christ moves in and among us, our eyes will be open to see him as he truly is, Lord, Master, and king. James V of Scotland was a king who was known for uh, disguising himself as a peasant and going out and just getting to know his people. And every now and then he would be mistreated because they didn't recognize him for who he was. He was a king, James V was. He was a lion, if you will, in the eyes of the world. But when he dressed up as a peasant, he was a lamb. Now, here's, here's what I believe. To see the first century Jesus in the flesh with normal earthly eyes was to see only a lamb. But to see him in the spirit, 
To see him as God gave vision. To hear him speak, to watch him work, was to see the king, the lion. All the evidence was there. What did he tell John the Baptist's disciple? Go back and tell John what you see. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the dead are raised, the poor, the the downtrodden are having good news proclaimed to them. You see, if we read carefully and look past the appearances of the lamb and see his actions and his signs, we see the king, we see the lion. That's why Jesus was so fearless. Jesus spoke with authority. Isn't that what the people said about him? They said, wow, we've never heard anybody. He doesn't teach like the scribes and the Pharisees that we've heard. He he teaches as one having authority. I want to show you a passage of Scripture from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 22. Uh, the, uh, The Pharisees and the Herodians, two of the religious sects or denominations, are trying to trap Jesus in his words. You remember the story where they try to get him to say, hey, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Well, this is that occasion. But I want you to notice how they try to, get, try to uh, butter Jesus up, how they try to get him ready to trip him up. Here's what they say. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, notice this, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. What does that tell us? It tells us that even those religious leaders said, yep, we know that you you talk straight and you don't play up to anyone, however popular or unpopular they are, however powerful or small they are, you just tell it the way it is. Even they saw that lion side. It was a lion, by the way, who made that whip out of cords in the temple and he turned the tables over and he drove the money changers out and he said, my father's house shall be called a place of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. It was the lion who said to those Pharisees, you hypocrites, you den of snakes, of vipers, You are whitewashed tombs. You look all pretty and clean on the outside, but underneath there's just rotting flesh and dead men's bones. That's what you guys are. It was the lion who, when the servants of the high priest came to arrest Jesus in the garden, do you remember? They asked him, who who are you? Are you Jesus? And he said, in the words that Moses spoke to, uh, or that God spoke to Moses, when Moses said, who are you? What did God say? I am. And Jesus in the garden said, I am. And what do we read happened? They fell at his feet through the power that came out of those words. It was the same lion who was asked by the high priest when they arrested him, speak plainly to us. Tell the council here whether or not you are God's Messiah and the Son of God. And Jesus said, you have said so. And I tell you that from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's the lion. As he stood there, battered and bruised, looking nothing like a lion or a king, but for those who had eyes to see and ears to hear. Now let's talk about that lion. 
that Jesus who offended so many religious people and caused such a scandal. And let's talk about that Jesus you and I are called on to follow, because that's the point of all of this. You and I are called on to follow and walk in the footsteps of the scandalous life of Jesus Christ. So the question that I want us to ask is, is it possible, and I'm repeating myself, but there's reason for that, is it possible for the Jesus who offended and scandalized so many people in his day to do that today? We've already answered that, yes. Is it possible for the Jesus who offended and scandalized the religious people and really the, the people of his own synagogue, if you remember his first message there in his synagogue, what happened? They were so offended by him that they tried to push him over the cliff at the edge of town. Is it possible for that today to happen among us? Now, that, that's why I'm sharing this. That's why I'm going to write this book, hopefully, pray for me, over my sabbatical. And that's why over the next few weeks as we move to the Christmas season, I want to begin by just showing you that the scandal started with his very birth the virgin mother who was unmarried, the genealogy in Matthew. Do you realize that Jewish genealogies did not include women? Jesus's did. Three women. One was a Gentile. Well, two were Gentiles. One was a um, converted prostitute, Rahab. And the other was an adulteress whose name's not mentioned, but it's Bathsheba in his genealogy. From the very beginning, God sets forth a scandal. Why? So that you and me must step over it and humble ourselves before God. So that we lay aside all claims to self-righteousness and pride and who I am and what I have. I know it's not popular to say this in a lot of churches today. But I'm convinced that there's large segments of evangelical Bible-believing churches like ours that have lost touch with the scandal that is the life of Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the master. He's the lion, but he's also the lamb, and his ways are not our ways. One more thing, and we'll be done. Okay, thanks for being patient with me. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Again, back to the beginnings of the scandal. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's recorded... Uh, in the other Gospels as well. But this is the summary of the message of Jesus. And uh, Jesus has just come out of the wilderness. He's been tempted by Satan, and he's beginning his ministry. And Matthew begins the ministry of Jesus with these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, just hang with me, okay, for about five more minutes, maybe ten. Repent. The Greek word is metanoia. It means change your way of thinking. 
your perspective, your worldview, your map of reality. You say, wait a minute, Dan. Repent, doesn't it have anything to do with sin? Yes. It has everything to do with sin. Deceit and unreality is the heart and the essence of sin. Believing a lie, believing something that's not accurate. And by the way, the Greek word for truth is the same word as reality, aletheon. Truth and reality are the same way. How did sin enter our world? Let me ask you that question. In the garden, sin entered our world because Eve and her husband who was with her, Adam, believed a lie. So are we surprised when we see that the heart of sin is a lie, false reality? Are we surprised that our Savior came into the world and his first words were, repent. Change the way you're thinking. Change the way you see things. God's kingdom is here, and to see it, you've got to change the way you see life and reality. In order for you and me to truly be the disciples Jesus is calling us to be. And can I say to you, Christianity is a lot more than a conversion and baptism and showing up at church. Christianity is a lifelong call to following Jesus Christ and becoming more and more like him. But in order to enter the kingdom of God and to walk in it in fullness and to be the men and women Jesus wants us to be, you and I have got to be in a constant state of repentance, asking God to continually change the way we see the world, our lives, people around us, and Him. To see from His eyes, His heart. When that happens, you know what? We'll stop looking down on others who are less, the homeless guy, or the person who maybe lives next door with an alternate lifestyle that bothers us, a heart will begin to beat like the heart of God. I'll end with this story. I've told it here before. It's found in Matthew 16. It's after um, Peter confesses Jesus is the Christ. He says, "Uh, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And then right after that, Jesus begins to tell his disciples, okay, you're right. I'm the Messiah. And then he says, now I need to let you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem as your Messiah. I'm going to be betrayed, crucified, handed over to chief priests and elders, and I'll be raised on the third day. Peter then takes him aside. Remember the story? He says, no, no, Lord. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, get behind me, Satan. For you do not have in mind the things of God but the things of men. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above our thoughts, so are God's God's ways above our ways, so are God's thoughts above our thoughts. The reason that Peter could not see Jesus as the crucified Messiah is he was still thinking like the world. The reason today... Many times I think we miss the ultimate calling of Jesus and we spend so much of our time and our energies on other things. Dare I say, things like politics and legislation in our countries. Do those things matter? Yeah, they matter. But 
sometimes we put so much energy and effort into the kingdoms of this world. And we miss the kingdom of our Lord. And we fail to reach and even shut the doors of heaven in the faces of people all around us because we're not reaching out to them like Jesus did. I believe this is a great challenge of the church today. I want to tell you how great the challenge is for you. It requires from you and me to follow Jesus everything. It requires a willingness to be misunderstood by others who know Christ, who've committed to him as Lord. But there's still this inability to see past the culture, past the other energies and efforts, and see the radical nature of Jesus. And so the call that I want to issue to you and to me is a call to follow that Jesus, whatever the cost. I promise it will cost. And it will always create in and out of the church a certain degree of scandal. That's God's way. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for this time today. I thank you that uh, you, the lion, came to us as a lamb. So easy to miss. And so easy today to think only like a lion. To exercise our power through our finances, our politics, our legislation. So many ways we... We think we can reach this world and send forth your message. And yet we don't even realize how immersed we are in the world around us and how our thinking and our ways are so far from yours. Help us to recognize as you open our eyes to see who you truly were and who you truly are. Help us to follow you and to commit to you. But also, Lord, help us. Lord, help us not to receive that truth and not to see you for who you are. Help that not to cause us to become self-righteous and to look down on others who love you and serve you, but perhaps have not come to fully see you for who you are and who you're meant to be. And that's maybe the greatest scandal of all, Lord that we would humble ourselves enough to follow you and to serve others in your name and ultimately believe that you will open eyes and hearts and help your church to beat back the gates of hell and open its doors wide for a lost and dying world. That's our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was so offensive to the religious leaders of his day. And I want to ask you a question, why? I mean, the very ones who should have recognized their Messiah, the teachers, the Bible scholars, if you will, rejected him. Now, why do you think that was? 
Why do you think, if you don't mind me saying, that the pastors and the preachers, the Bible scholars of Jesus' day, were the ones who rejected him? Was it because of who he was? A carpenter from Galilee, a country boy? Or maybe it was what he said or what he didn't say, what he did or what he didn't do. I wonder how Jesus would offend the church and many of the shepherds and religious leaders in the church today. You can be sure he would. Things oftentimes that we're involved in as Christians where we spend our money, our energy, our resources, our political involvement. In fact, I'm working on a book now that I hope to be released uh, maybe soon after these series of messages, Prophets or Patriots giving to Caesar what belongs to God. But there's another even more important question that I want you to think about. What are some of the ways that the life and message of Jesus offends us as Christians today, each one of us? Have you ever been offended by what God did or what God didn't do in your life? Maybe you have gone through a crisis or some kind of temptation and it it seemed like God wasn't there. Take some time. Think about it. Have you ever been angry at God? Why were you angry? Or maybe you've been disappointed by God. How did God disappoint you? In our next episode, as we look at the birth of Jesus and the scandal that began even with his birth, a pregnant girl in Nazareth, a scandalous genealogy filled with women which were never found in genealogies, Pagan astrologers following a star. That's what they did. They studied the stars from the very beginning. Everything associated with Jesus Christ was scandalous. This has been Church on the Edge with Dan Armistead. Rethinking what church is and what church should be. If you like this episode... Please leave a review at your preferred podcast provider. And you can find out more about this podcast, as well as my articles, coming books, and more at danarmistead.com. And remember, it's all about Jesus and following Him as His church on the edge.